Hello and welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor with me, your host, James Mitra. Here at JBM, we think one of the best things you can do for your career is to find a great mentor who you can learn from and be inspired by. So for those of you who are looking for this mentorship, we launched this podcast. In each episode, we'll be sharing career stories, advice and mentorship from some of the most inspiring people we know. And we hope that you can apply some of these learnings to your life and career. I'm always keen to get feedback, so if you have any thoughts once you've listened to this interview, just drop me a line at james at jbmc.co.uk. In today's episode of the 40 Minute Mentor, I'm joined by the former Bulgarian football international and Aston Villa captain, Stilian Petrov. Having started his professional career in Bulgaria, Stilian joined Celtic in 1999 where he went on to become a club legend, winning 10 trophies, including four Scottish Premier League titles. Following this success, he moved to Aston Villa and ultimately became the club's captain in 2009, leading the team to the semi-finals of the FA Cup and the final of the League Cup in his first season. With his career going from strength to strength, everything changed for Stilian in March 2012, when after going for some routine medical tests after a game, he was diagnosed with leukaemia. He tackled this challenging part of his life with incredible bravery and positivity, ultimately beating the cancer, although the road to recovery took its toll and despite getting back to being fit and healthy, he ultimately had to retire from the professional game in May 2013. Stilian is extremely honest and open about the struggles he went through and it was amazing to sit down with him to learn more about his incredible career story and what he's taken from both the highs and the lows so far. In this interview, we talk about so many interesting and important topics, including Stilian's early years and how he went from playing Sunday League football in Bulgaria to becoming a professional in the UK when he didn't even speak the language. His take on what makes a great leader and how he adapted to the role of captain and his advice for others looking to get the best from their team and his battle with cancer and his career post-football, how he overcame the mental and physical challenges that he faced and what the future holds for him now. As an avid Aston Villa fan, I followed Stilian's journey throughout his career, and it was a true honour to sit down with him and learn more about his life on and off the pitch. What he's achieved is truly inspiring, and it's incredible to see how he's managed to come back from such adversity to continue pursuing a career and life around the game he loves. Meeting Stilian dispelled a lot of the stereotypes that I had about footballers. He is warm, down-to-earth, incredibly honest and very generous with his time and ultimately a very loyal family man with strong values and a genuine desire to help others. I hope even if you're not a football fan you'll really enjoy listening to this very special episode and we'll take some real inspiration from Stilian's amazing story and his wise mentorship. So after that rather lengthy intro please sit back relax and enjoy my conversation with Stilian Petrov. Dilian, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. Thanks so much for being with us today. I thought we could kick this off, as we always like to, with an overview of your CV in 30 seconds, if that's all right. Hello. <laughs> Stephen Petrov, former football player. I've played for a number of clubs. Montana, which I've started. CSK Sofia. Celtic. Aston Villa. I'm a, a record holder of cups uh, for Bulgaria as well, which I'm really proud moment uh, for me. I've retired because of illness uh, in 2012, which was really devastating for me because this is a 
something that I love doing and I've grown up to become a footballer. But in general, that is my overview of my career and where I'm up to date. And that was really close to 30 seconds. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much interesting stuff there. You've had a fantastic career. I thought we could start at the beginning, though, because lots of people, I'm sure, listening will have kids or maybe kids listening who want to play football. And you're one of you that has made it in the professional game. So do you remember that moment that you decided you were going to go for it? And can you tell us a bit about kind of your approach when you were younger? Well, I don't think I had a choice. <laughs> my father was an ex-footballer and my mother was involved in sport as well. So my family altogether was a very sporty family. My granddad, you know, he worked at the stadium as well. So when my dad was training, I was always around there. My granddad would look after me. I'll be always kicking the ball. Um, I have the ball in my feet and I'll be just walking on uh, around the stadium and I'll be kicking it. And uh, I didn't really have a choice. But as much as I didn't have a choice, I wanted to become a footballer. At that time in Bulgaria, we had a lot, a lot of good players. We had a lot of idols, uh, players that played in a very high level. You know, Stoichkov, Leskov, Kostadinov. This is players that played for Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Sporting Lisbon, Hamburger. You know, a lot, a lot of big teams. And uh, as a young kid, you want to look up to somebody and become like that person and uh, we definitely had so many to look up to and uh, we wanted to be like them we wanted to achieve what they've achieved because if you remember 94 yeah Bulgaria finished <laughs> fourth and uh, you know the country was uh, you know in a great mood we, we celebrated and as a young kid you know willing to become a footballer you had somebody to look up to you wanted to become something that and you want to achieve something that other people achieve because you want to leave moments like that. You want to be part with moments like that. So for me, I had great idols and I wanted to be like them, which make a, a big difference in a, a young kid's dream. Good stuff. And you, you mentioned your dad and your granddad. They clearly had an impact and an important role in that. How did they approach getting you along that path? Well, my, uh, my dad was very strict with me. My dad uh, obviously saw that I have potential and I had the desire and determination to to work hard to make sure that I do the right thing. So he pushed me really hard. Uh, he wasn't a softie. I remember that, you know, after every game that I played badly, he, he, won't, he won't talk to me for about a few weeks and, uh, you know, and, until I start doing things right. And, and that was me, but I wasn't expecting any, anything else. That was uh, the demand from my dad. Some people will, will think he's maybe he's too harsh or maybe too demanding, but I believe that was the way for me to build up and make sure because I always played with the older boys. I was always pushed to to achieve, to push, to, to make sure that I've got that ter- determination to catch other ones and to be better than the other ones. So it was a good approach for me. I uh, I got used to it. I, I expected to be the best when I come out of after the training session, after the game. I want to be the best. I want to do the right things. And I knew straight away in my dad's eyes, if I haven't done that <laughs> in the right way, you know, you, I'll see instead of his eyes, I'll see his back. So <laughs> he won't talk to me for weeks. But this is something that I've grown up with. Uh, it pushed me really hard and I've managed to achieve what I've achieved in my career. Clearly, some of that tough love instilled the resilience you needed. I think a lot of people can can relate to that. I'm sure you get asked a lot sort of 
what advice would you give to kids that are looking to, to make it as a professional footballer? But I'm also curious, as a parent myself, to a three and a half year old daughter who I force occasionally to watch football with, what's your advice to parents, you know, to how they can best support their ch children who may have the potential to go that far? But equally, how can you prepare them for, you know, the probability is it's, it's going to be much harder to make it than not. So how would you advise people that are in that position? Let, let them be their dream. That's the problem with the parents these days. <laughs> All of us want our kids uh, to be footballers, to have a great life, to have that famous impact, you know, to be to everybody to talk about our kids. Let them be their dream. Let them fight for that dream and let them work out for that dream because what is the problem these days? We we all want our kids to be football players. Not everybody can be. Even mine sometimes is, is my problem as well. And uh, I see it from my point of view. So I say, let them deal. Let them fight their own problems. Let them become what they want to become in, in, in their own way. Don't let them fight their, your dreams because me or somebody or a parent never had the chance to become a footballer been taken away from him or never had the ability to do it, let that dream be their own dream because sometimes we push our kids in a different directions and if you give them that choice to be their choice, I think they'll be much easier. Yeah, I think it's, it's great advice. I want to come back to, to your earlier parts of your career. So how, how big of a shift was it for you going from a kid, you know, clearly a very talented kid to, to signing professionally? I know you went to CSKA, uh, Sofia. What was the biggest shock for you at that time? How did you make that transition? It was a very difficult transition because uh, I made my professional football debut when I was 16. Uh, I remember I was in school. And I was uh, dragged, literally dragged out from, uh, <laughs> I had, I think I was, the subject was maths. I was having maths and, uh, I'm sure I you're pleased that, to get yeah, out of that they one. Had a, they had the school come back, come on and say that, uh, one of the, the players, there was a cup game. The first team was playing a, a cup game and one of the players got injured in a, an early a morning training session. So they needed somebody else. And I was picked to be part of that team. Amazing. And that day, yeah. So 16 years old, I made my debut when I was 16. I've pl I remember I've played only 10 minutes. It was the best day of my life because played for my own, own town team. When I grew up, I went through every single age groups and I was given a debut in front of the, you know, local fans. It was, it was incredible. Awesome. When I turned 17, I moved to CSK. It was, um, it was a difficult transition for me, but me and Martin Petrov, we both, both moved together. Ah, amazing. We both moved together to CSK Sofia and we lived together for uh, two years. Awesome. We went to a national service together. So that transition made it a lot easier for me because I was with somebody else. I think if I was on my own, it would have been completely different. But we've signed for uh, one of the biggest teams in, um, in Bulgaria. And that time they had a great manager and a very strong team. Very powerful characters, very big players, very players that have already achieved so much in football. So for us, it was a great learning curve. And uh, they treated us like, like a youngsters. They'll be hard on us. They'll demand more from us. It was like going back to, to my dad, you know. <laughs> but my dad's approach actually prepared me for that. Because he said, when you go to the first team, that will be their demand. They will ask you to be the best and to perform at their level. They wouldn't count you as a young boy. They wouldn't count you that you there just to learn. When the game comes, they will expect you to be ready. They will give you a little bit of time, but that's going to be a very short of time. And if you don't show them that you are ready to step up, to play in that level, to meet their demand, 
very difficult they're going to accept you so to me it was kind of a lesson from very yeah, early yeah. age you'd had and that I'm, instilled in you already yes and i was prepared for that kind of uh approach and that kind of uh, treatment which for me it was okay and then uh, me and martin went to do our national service uh, See, which, which is, is it's unique isn't it i mean how, how was that for you at that time because you were just starting your career as well we just moved to csk sphere we just we had a season i think i was playing more than martin was playing and then we had to start on a national service uh, it was 18 months so the 18 months most of the national service places they weren't allowed people to go out and train first six months was very difficult for us because we weren't allowed to train with the team or play with the team we could only train or play with the uh, army team okay. which that you only train once a week uh, and you play on a, on a weekend which wasn't good enough and i guess the standard wasn't anywhere near the same <laughs> no actually it was the standard was good because at that time most of our uh, players that we played through the age groups, they were the same age, so they were playing a okay. different army team. I agree. So the, 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 the games were competitive, but missing a professional training regime was very difficult for us. So I remember after nearly seven months, we, we were allowed to start training with, um, with, the, with the first team, with the CSK first team, but we weren't allowed to play. So we had to wait nearly over a year for us to be given permission to start playing for, with, uh, with TSK first team again. So it was really difficult process for us to really get into and to really understand. But I remember in the last six months I managed to play for CSK, play a couple of games and when we finished with our national service I was picked up for the um, Bulgarian national team. Me and Martin played against uh, England yeah, I got spotted and uh, I moved to Celtic. But I remember Martin Petrov got moved to Cervet Geneva a few months earlier. So you already left <laughs> and I was left on my oh. own. And after that England game, uh, everything just, uh, it was a new, be new beginning for me. Wonderful. And, and you went on to, as you said, a record cap holder, have an incredible career. I'm keen to obviously come into some of the highlights a bit later. But I think one thing, given what we do as a, a JBM, as a headhunting firm, we hear about, we look after moves all the time, people moving careers and moving jobs. But in our world, it's kind of a regular thing. And we hear a lot on the football side about the transfer fees and, you know, all those things. But we don't always hear about the, the stuff that happens, the other important things. So you moved from, you know, a new country. I know you didn't speak the language at the time. Is that right? <coughs> For you, what was that experience like moving to Celtic at such a young age? I assume with a huge weight of expectation on your shoulders and having just broken into the national team. What was that experience like for you? It was an amazing experience. I won't say it was a bad or a good. I think it was an amazing experience for, for myself. I remember when I, when I signed for Celtic and uh, I had to wait for a visa for a work permit for me to be able to start playing for Celtic. So that took about a couple of months. So the uncertainty there, I'm going to get a visa. That when I'm going to get the visa, when I'm going to travel. And I remember when I actually got the work permit, uh, I was told that I have to travel on my own uh, through Brussels, Sofia, Brussels, Brussels, Glasgow. Okay. So my agent let me go on my own. This is my first trip um, going on my own oh. abroad. <laughs> because you, we as a players, you know, when, when we play for a club, you get looked after. You know, when you say we're traveling, we're playing European game, okay, everything is organized for you. You get your bag, you prepare your bag, you make sure the player liaison takes you, uh, you guys got this, this, this and this. I'll see you at eight o'clock in the airport. You go, you drop your bag, there your passport, you checked in, in the plane, in the hotel, play the game, come back. Brilliant. So easy. Easy. <laughs> yeah. 
But when you have to travel on your own, oh. then it's completely different. Yeah, of course. And it's completely different because, first of all, I wasn't speaking any English, which is the biggest problem for me. I never travel on my own. I never been through Brussels. I'm going to a country I don't know what to expect. So the fear of taking that journey, it's a lot to take as a 19 years old boy who don't speak the language. I'm going to a different country. So daunting. It's, yeah, it's different nature, it's different understanding, it's different a view about football itself in Scotland. So it was good. I got lost in Brussels, which was, uh, was yeah. uh, a good start. I managed to land in, in Glasgow. Brilliant. Walking out, uh, you know, pick my bags, two bags, walking out. What I can see is media, a lot of media out there, TVs, press, everything. Now I'm thinking what I'm going to say. No word of English. I'm panicking now. Oh, no. I don't know what's happening. The guy who's supposed to pick me up from the club, he's late. Nobody's there. People asking questions. I'm just shaking my head. So all of a sudden from looking forward to go abroad to be able to develop everything that worked for all of a sudden i'm going to a panic mode it's like what's happening here when i mean i can't explain anything i can't say anything <laughs> who is here so that goes through uh and then the next chapter starts you know meeting my teammates facing the the demand from the celtic fans for the for the club itself because celtic is a it's a demand playing for for celtic it's 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 demanding to succeed. You have to succeed in, in some way. And people there don't wait for you. They don't wait for you to adapt. It's same like my transition from, you know, growing up as a young player, yeah. you want to achieve it, you work hard, you move on. Going to CSK, Sofia, you know, people don't wait for you. You have to get in straight in. Same as Celtic as well. But for me, Celtic was completely different because the, I always believe the communication is a way forward. You have to communicate. You have to understand the culture. You have to be able to understand what your teammates want from you and what you want from them. But when you're not able to do that, it makes it even more difficult, more harder. Then um, I'll start hiding in training. I'll start hiding away from, you know, communicating with uh, with my teammates because I couldn't understand. I couldn't give them a feedback. They'll ask a question. And you can see at a certain time the, the players will start pulling away from you because they don't get the feedback. Mm. They don't get the communication. They don't get that engagement from you. When you start seeing that, you know you're in trouble, yeah. which for me was the most difficult thing to deal, to deal mm. with at the start. And how did you go about that? I mean, it, it's scary enough moving countries, let alone not speaking the language. But then, you know, I assume you're under pressure from day one to show them, you know, to repay the faith that they've shown in you. The communication is very important. So did you just start learning English from day one? And just how did that work? I had to adjust and adapt very quickly. So I mean, very quickly, I've decided that I have to take a new approach. I've made a friend with one of security guys and his name is Brian Wilson. And, uh, you know, he, he was the one who took me under his wing and he started teaching me the language. You know, first of all, he, he started driving me back and forth from my flat to training and then after training back home to the game, we start learning the language, you know, but starting with the part of the, your body, and moving to more uh, serious stuff. And, uh, you know, he, he, at that time, his wife had a, a burger van, so it took me a couple of times, you know, to really understand how things work. The work important things, the how to things, burger yeah. and chips. Yeah. I heard some good <laughs> language as well, early, early mornings as well. <laughs> but this is something I've done, and I know people sometimes are laughing at, why would you do that? Because I had to do it. I want to fit in. 
I think Actually, it shows the mindset as well, just you know, putting yourself out of your comfort zone. You know, that's, that's impressive. And people say, yeah, but you could do it in a different way. But at that time, Celtic, which now is completely different, they learned from having the experience with my problem, they've learned very quickly. They invest a lot in the player liaison, so, uh, you know, players are well looked after, make sure that this won't happen again. And that's how... As a club, as a person, you call it, as a company as well, you're evolving, you, you're improving, you make sure that you don't make these mistakes again. And Celtic have done that the years after. But at that time, for me, it was very important to find a way to fit in, in some kind of way, because first of all, I found it very difficult. Secondly, I wanted to stay, I wanted to do well. And thirdly, I had to make a change. And that change is learn that language quickly, understand the culture, understand my teammates, understand the, the demand from the fans, what, what they're saying, what they're shouting, what they want. So for me, being able to speak the language was very important for me. But I think the way you went about it also will indeed you to your your teammates, to the fans, to show that, because I think you do hear, don't you, the certain footballers moving countries and not learning their language, not fully integrating. And I think people can clearly see you are committed from day one, even in the fact that you were, you know, going to burger vans in the morning just to pick up some uh, local, maybe some choice words. <laughs> but I think that says a lot about you. And it doesn't surprise me and, and anyone listening that you, you obviously went on to have a a fantastic career became a, a club legend. So yeah, I think people probably don't always think about all the other things you need to think about when you make those sorts of moves. Not really. You know, I've played with couple of players through my. You know, they've they've come over and um, they've never they never put that effort to learn the language and to understand the club uh, itself. And most of them left very quickly. But you're not surprised. You can see they've got the talent, they've got the ambitions. But if you don't put the effort, I always believe that if you go to somebody's house. And that was not my house. Going to Scotland was not my house. So I had to understand and I have to learn the rules very quickly. Mm. To fit in that house, you have to do what is required. And for me, it was to learn the language, to understand the club, to make sure that I'm going to play with the passion that the, the fans and the club demand. And if I haven't done that quickly or I couldn't adapt to it, I would never succeed it. And that's the way it goes. If you go to somebody's house, you, you play by their rules. Yeah, definitely. It's not such a thing that, yeah, but I can do this and I'll do it that way. <laughs> okay, some people say, yeah, but I've done it. A very small percentage will do it. And I knew that I'm not one of these incredible talents that I can just go pick the ball and do wonders. I had to work for it. I had to improve and I, I, I still had a room to improve and I had to. So for me, it was very important to understand, adapt and move on with it. Great, great. You played for some great sides, Celtic, Aston Villa and, and some amazing players over your career. When you look back now and reflect on it, what was the best team for you and, 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 and what makes a great team in your opinion? Both teams. I, I think at Celtic, we had a, a really special team. We had some, I was the youngest one. Uh, with Villa was completely different. Uh, I'm going to start with Celtic and then I'm going to move to Villa because uh, we were two incredible teams, but in a, in a different way. With Celtic, I was the, the youngest one. So for me, that for me, Celtic was a, a, a great learning curve for me because at, the, at that time I had every single player in that, in that club was very well and very established international player. Every single one, maybe 90% of the team was international players. They were playing regularly. They had more than 50 caps each each of them some of them but like Cole Lambert already won the European club you have Henry Klaassen you've got Chris Sutton you've got John Hudson you've got Josh Bogarin you've Legends. got Johan Melli 
incredible, incredible characters. You know, you know, you don't describe them as legends or good players. Characters, yeah. characters that players that don't like to lose, mm. and this may, uh, makes a, a huge difference yeah. in a team environment. When you have players like that, you can only learn the best from them, and you can only adapt and just go with the flow. Because going with the flow and showing the same enthusiasm and showing the, the same determination as them, they fit you in straight away, mm. and you just land in the right way. And we had a great desire to win with that team. And we've achieved so much. Mm. Now with Villa, when I moved in, I was already experienced. Yeah. With the Villa, it was completely different. With the Villa, I moved in, so Martino knew how to rebuild that team. You have to make a completely new team. So that took about probably three years. Mm. So three years, I was coming as a, as a big name, first signing, coming as a, as a player who used to score goals, make difference in the game. All of a sudden, I found that I'm a team that is just rebuilding. So I had to be very patient. I had to work even harder. I found the league even more demanding, more physical, better individuals, which for me was another learning. I told that coming here, I was already learned enough. Yeah. Coming here, I had to step again. I had to make sure I'm improved and improve in a different way and support people because at the time, I was the experienced one. And you had a lot of like, you know, you Stuart Downing, you had Ashley Young, you had, um, you know, Gabby Bono, you had a lot of young boys coming through. So you had to be supportive. And as much as I had to pay attention for my individual performance, I have to make sure that I helped others as well, which was completely different. But again, Martin O'Neill made uh, another team with uh, winning mentality and great character. Amazing. Yeah, great sides and some great players. It's probably a slightly unfair question, but does, is there one player that, that stood out to you as the best? And if so, why? Because I'm sure listeners will be interested. Uh, no, it's, uh, I, will, I will pick one, and um, I don't think many people can disagree, and this is how that's Henry Glasson. Yeah, uh, what a player. I mean, um, the stats, the way, the way he's presented himself through his career, talks volume about his his achievements but being his um his teammate and a friend as well he, he i know how good he is he's just a complete player he knew football inside out he was the the great professional he was one of these quiet ones calling quiet assassin he's the man who when the team was in trouble he always come up with something special he always be there for us he always supported you always make sure that every time he come out of the pitch, he would have enough, not just for himself, but for the team as well. Mm. And when you have somebody in that team, then you look up to him. You want to be like him. You want to follow him. You want to play for him. You want to play with him as well. So this is the reason that I will pick Henry Class. And I've played with many other good ones, but he, stand, he stand out because, like I say, he's a complete package and he's got everything. So... I will probably stick with him. Oh, it's a, a great <laughs> answer. And, and I think there's something about those sorts of people, whether it's in the business sense or, or in a sporting context, but those sorts of leaders, they really galvanize the team. And like you said, you want to play for them and with them and they kind of raise everyone up. You've you know, had a very successful career as a player, but also as a leader. And I want, that kind of is a nice segue into the next part of our chat because I wanted to talk a bit about captaincy and, and leadership. When you made the move from, from Celtic to Villa, I know part of that was, was linked to a change in manager. I know you, you knew Martin O'Neill as well before. Can you tell us a bit about the importance of having a good manager 
for you and, and, and the effect it's had in your career? And, and what separates maybe a good manager from a great manager? A lot of things separate. It's, uh, it's very, uh, the way football is going now, it's me working with Martin Neil, it's, it's about trust. It's about trusting somebody that I knew that if I were hard, if I do the right thing, I have a chance to play. To play for a man who wants to win, who wants to achieve, he wants to, who already achieved not as a player only, but as a manager as well. So for me, that was very important. Trust and loyalty is, is, and respect is very important. This is the three things that you have to, you have to understand. And this is what I always believed in. And this man had it with him, you know, and, um, it was very easy choice for me to, to go and play for him, to move from Celtic to Villa. For me, it was, it was a very easy choice because I knew that he's going to a club he wants to achieve. He had the support of Randy Lennon, the chairman as well. They wanted to create something special at Villa as, as well. And uh, down the line, they showed that they've worked very well together. And my choice was the right choice. But having these three things, I mean, when you look at today's and you say, who I want to play with, why I want to play for this manager, what is good that a manager does for me, what I do for him. It's not just what I do for him, but you know what he does for me as well. And he showed me from there one that is trustful. Mm-hmm. And when you have somebody that's trustful, even when you don't do well and you've got the eyes to look at you and say, you know what, you're not good today. You got you need to get better. You don't get offended. You just want to have that and you want to be back in these good books. And this for me was very important. And Matthew and you had that in him. He had that aura to go and speak to people, to understand people and man manage people, which was the most important and more important actually the tactical session or the session yeah. he's going to put on. Because Martin always believed that if he had a team, if he buy a, a good player and he put him in the right friend of mine, he always play for him and he can always get extra 20% of him. And this 20%, if you look at it, this 20% will make a big difference yeah. through the season and through the years as well. Definitely. A uh, very, very inspiring leader. And, and clearly a lot of those qualities, you know, rub off on players. And clearly for yourself, you worked closely with him and became the captain of Villa in 2009. So had being a captain always been a goal for you? I know you also captained your country many times. And if so, what were you doing throughout your career to kind of lay those foundations to, to become a good captain? A lot of people, it's a big dispute about, and it's a lot of question about, you know, are you a captain material? Do you become a leader? Do you debut you as a leader? I think uh, you can you can spot a leader or you can spot a, a, a positive person from the moment you meet him. I think that's how you know that you've got that ability to lead or to support people or to lead in the right way because you get leaders, but sometimes you have a bad leader. Yeah, true. <laughs> and for me, it was really understanding when people saying to me, oh, you'll be a great captain material, you should lead the team, you should that. When people start asking that, you start asking yourself question, leading in what way, leading how, what was the right way? Do you support, do you lead, how you lead and what, what direction? Because you have to lead in the right direction. You know, and you judge if you've been a good leader or a big captain afterwards. It's not in the current situation or that season or the season after. You know, maybe 10 years later, people talk about it. If they talk about it, that you led the team or people or, or a person in the right way, I mean, you've done it in the right manner, in the right way. So for me, it was really to understand my teammates because people do forget that we're just human beings. And we live our lives like everybody else. You know, people in this room, it's not different. You know, they, they, 
us as players, we've got the same, the same, the same problems, you know. Like you, you know, yeah. I, I had the same problem. You go back home, your wife done online shopping, they say you need to go back and return. <laughs> I've got the same problem as you have. <laughs> you know, and this yeah. is problems, you know, people have a, a family problem. They have a problem with young bo boys with their girlfriends or with the wife or the kids or the kids nowhere and or family reasons or or sometimes they'll come and know right right friend of mine. And you have to understand this. Yeah. You Being have able to, to relate to them. Of yeah. course. If you're not being able to relate or to communicate, we're going back to that communication. Yeah, yeah. It's very difficult for them to trust you to lead. You know, you sometimes have to understand that who has to be pushed, who 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 you have to put your your arm around. You know, not everybody is the same. Everybody reacts and respond in a different way. So for me, it was really about understanding people. You know, being able to adjust and. And, and move into it to support him or push him. Yeah. This was very important. If you manage to do that, your job becomes easier. But as mentioned before, I've played in the two very special teams. For, for me, it was easier. Yeah, fair because enough. Because I haven't had to do a lot of work because the boys are coming in the right frame yes. of mind. Because they knew to win, they already went through all the difficulties through their career. They knew what it is to take to become a leader, to become a winner, to win games, you know, especially in that kind of level. So for me, it was easier job, but I still had to be in a good place and I had to monitor it and very closely. Yeah, definitely. Did your leadership style change throughout your career at all? Because you're clearly, a, and having met you a couple of times, you have a, a natural charisma, you're a people person. So it doesn't surprise me that, that your teammates kind of bought into you, but did that evolve as you got more senior and more experienced? Yeah, I think you become more more calm more relaxed, I think you assess the situation in a, in a different way. I think when you're younger, you think that everything has to be intense, everything mm -hmm. has to be worse, you have to be louder. But then you realize that, you know, sometimes a calm voice can lead the team in a, in a better direction, actually being aggressive. So having the different situation and having different individual cases, you kind of learn and, and move on and lead in a different way, which I think is the same as everybody else. Yeah. You know, working in a in an environment with twenty five different characters, so the, the different uh, company. If you work with fifty people, mm. not everybody's the same. Not everybody comes smiling in the, in the morning. Somebody's a moody early morning guy. Yeah. Somebody's happy. I'll have boys, you know, coming and not saying good morning. And you know, I have to work, have a word with them. So it's, it's about respecting your teammates. Yeah, but it's not disrespect. I just I was just tired. I was just say, say yeah. Because then the other ones that actually come every morning bubbly and positive, they go morning and I say, I don't have time for him. He's not even saying good morning. Mm. But, you know, trying to bring them together just to understand that, you know, not everybody's the same. It's not an easy job. Yeah. It's not an easy job. So <laughs> if you manage to do that, then you've got more chance to, when you go out in the piece, these boys will follow you. Especially not in the good moments, you know, when, when you're winning, when everything when goes the chips well, are down, yeah, definitely. then you don't work with the ones that play. You have to really understand the ones that don't play. Totally. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And this, sense. Is, this is the hardest bit, you know, to, if you play in a successful team, if you play in a team that win like Celtic, if you lose only two games a season, how are you going to keep uh, uh, another 10 guys happy? Okay, the 12, 13, they play, they're very happy. Yeah. But what about the rest of it? Yeah, true, true. The other 50, 60%, how you keep them happy? How do you maintain that calmness in the dressing room? 
And I tell you what, it's just some, so everybody comes from a, a different yeah. culture. Everybody understands football in a different way. They want to play in a different way. They're more aggressive. They're more enthusiastic. And I call them they're more spicy. You know, they have they react in training. They're frustrated. They're not, not playing. So you have to deal with it, yeah. and you have to find a way. Well, you were a, a, a very well-respected leader <laughs> who had a lot of success. Do you have any particular highlights? What was the what was the biggest highlight from your career? The biggest highlight for my career is probably, I'll say, making my debut for, for the national team. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, going back to what we talked yeah. about earlier, you know, following my idols, want to be as uh, same as my idols, want to achieve what they've achieved, want mm. to be respected as the way I respected them. This was a very proud moment for me, and I think it was a very proud moment for my mom and dad, my yeah. brother, you know, because they've supported me through, you know, all my development and... Uh, you know, for me to, to put that national team shirt for the first time and listening, listening to the, the national anthem, I think probably is the proudest moment for me. What an honour. And I'd imagine most people that are listening and watching this won't have ever been in that situation, probably won't ever be in that situation. But what does it feel like when you're in the tunnel getting ready for that or perhaps the UEFA Cup final that you're in? What's that kind of feeling? And do you go into that mode of, I'm just it's just another game, I'm, I'm just going to treat it as if? Or... Is that impossible because the sense of the occasion just kind of gives no, you that I was, energy? No, uh, I, was, I was away with the national team. My debut was uh, is in Morocco. So at that time, forget it, that all, the, all the people that looked up, you know, Stoichkov, Lechkov, they were still in the team. Wow. They were still playing. So only I was me and another young boy who was, who was going to make, who traveled with the team. We didn't know if we were going to play. But I was selected for them, you know, for the national team. You know the media was all raving, and I was I was only 18, and it was it was incredible, and I was nervous. You know, going on a plane and traveling, you know, seeing this the pressure all over the place. I was nervous. I was very nervous, and I remember we lost four one as well. <laughs> no, the best. <laughs> Doesn't take it away from yeah, you. Yeah, uh, for me, <laughs> I, I came on as a sub, and uh, for me, it was the, the proudest moment. I was very nervous, but I was satisfied with what I've of what I've achieved because then you realize that. You're working in the right right way. Yeah. You've done everything right, and people recognize it and notice that what you've done, and they're giving you a chance. And for me, it was probably the proudest moment. And I think uh, that th that nervous thing is interesting to me because I always have nervous energy before a big meeting, before a pitch, before you know any, anything that, that, that where there's a bit of extra pressure. But I like that nervous energy. As you get more experience and you played over a hundred times for your country. Do you still get those nerves or does that change and do you deal with it differently? I think being nervous is good. I think being nervous is it means that you care. It means that you you assess in different situations, different moments. It's what's going to happen, what could happen. Because, and again, if you're in the football industry, it's, it's ups and downs. And you're nervous about, okay, big game. We've achieved that. It's an important game. I want to win it. It's a cup game. It's a final. It's a relegation battle. And this is the moment that you're assessing what you have to do and how you have to do it. Yeah. And you know what? The send the first whistle, go. That never has go. Because you're already in it. You're already in and it. you're just you doing your job. I know what I'm <laughs> yeah, doing now. Yeah. I know what I have to do. I know how far, you know, I have to run, how hard I have to run. You know, you go into the halftime, you're assessing again. You know, nervousness is, you come now because you're already in that situation. Yeah. But this is normal. I wasn't particularly nervous. I had a lot of adrenaline. I was looking forward to play the game. I was, we were living for this moment. I was living to play on a Saturday, to be part of, 
you know, uh, playing for Celtic or playing for CSK or playing for Aston Villa or a national team. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love traveling, you know, flying all over the globe to play for a national team. You know, people say, oh, you get tired. Yeah, but I love it. This is what I want to be. This is part of me. So, yeah, I'm nervous. I, I well, get tired. Oh, I'm nervous because I'm, I won't be able to play successfully for the team, for my club. No, you never work that yeah, way. You embrace it. Yeah, no, you definitely. Have to. Well, I want to come on to um, something slightly different. I, and you've overcome some really challenging times in, in, in recent years, including your battle with leukemia. So I just wanted to talk a bit about that at the moment, because for all the amazing success you've had in, in football, uh, the way you've overcome that in itself has been quite an incredible uh, achievement and would have taken a huge amount of resilience and drive. So, so I just want to talk a bit about kind of how you found out about that and particularly how you overcame that that sort of challenging period of your life? Well, it was, um, it just, just found out very spontaneous, you know, it's just, it's just one of these things that you, you don't expect in life. You know, you, it's a questioning what was me and how did it happen? And, you know, this, this, how everything started, you know, just before the Arsenal, uh, we played Arsenal uh, in a league game, uh, the, the week leading before the game, I felt a little bit, a uh, little bit unwell, like nothing really much that you have to worry about the certain things when you're a dad and a father, you know, you know, your kids go to school and nurseries and, you know, they bring different viruses, bugs and that. We, we all been there. Yeah. But leading to the, to the game to Arsenal, I felt a little bit un, unwell. Mm-hmm. I didn't think we'd, I had to worry about it. I was just kept training and I, I you know, I sweat out and, you know, I'm just looking forward to the, to the Arsenal game because it was a great stadium, great occasion, and you know I didn't really pay attention to it. It's one of these things that you just brush it aside, you sweat it out, and you go. But the problem for me starts at not much with the leading to it. It's it's actually during the game. What happened during the game, and how my body reacted, and how I couldn't control uh, my body, and my mind was was asking for one thing. It was sending one different information for my body to do these things, and my body won't react. This was the worry for me at that day. After the game, you know, we had a little uh, incident uh, and a half time. I was, I was, I wanted to come off because I didn't feel right. And a few of the boys jumped in, and Alex McLeish, you know, wanted me to continue and help the boys the way I've, uh, I've always done it. So I think the adrenaline kicked in, and I've managed to finish the game. I was on the pitch, but my mind wasn't. My mind was completely different because I knew that something is not right. And it's not normal. It must have been scary. Not really scary. It's just the the doubt about not finding out and not having the answer. Yeah. This is this is the worry for me. And when we don't have the answer to our question, you know, if you have the answer, then you can adjust and you can yeah. move on. But at uh, at that time, I, I couldn't find an answer. I couldn't just not uh, find the way out. I was saying, after the game, I was on the bus. I had a little temperature again. Nothing really the raising concern about what I could I'll actually uh, find out in the following couple of days. But everything went through it. We've, we've lost the game mentally. As a person, I was there mentally and physically I wasn't there. So it was two different persons of that day. The following week, because of the Muambas case, course, yeah. we had a just uh, a heart test. And the, the doctor decided to do a random blood test, random blood test. So he just wanted to find more about the boys to make sure everything is in the right track. Everybody's recovering well. A few days later, just dipping all the, the little stuff. And a few days later, 
I was diagnosed with uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, um, a shock that, first of all, for me to really understand and answer another more question that I couldn't answer, you know, again, why me? How did it happen? What's the way forward? How I'm going to get rid of it? What, what kind of treatment do I have to go through? So this is the questions that was really, really concerning me. And uh, also there I had to make sure that, first of all, I had to break the news to my wife, to my family, to my friends. So it was different stages of, you know, being diagnosed and what you have to do and how you have to do yeah. it. I had to go for a second opinion. I had to make sure that the diagnosis is right. Because sometimes, yeah. you know, it's a blood test. People do make mistakes and that. It was confirmed. So for me, I had to, in the space of a week, being a professional football player, everything going going well for you. I was negotiating another two-year deal with uh, with Aston Villa Football Club. The family booked uh, a holiday as well. So from everything looking yes. great, life and good, is cruel, yeah, isn't it? It's yeah, it's brilliant. Eh? In the space of that that week, I started a treatment, uh, leukemia treatment. First week was. Um, First week was uh, just the steroids, high dose of steroids. And for the rest of the three years, uh, it was uh, all chemotherapies, journeys to the hospital, seeing the kids less and less, wondering, you know, just living day by day and just wondering if my next bone marrow test will be, I'm in remission, I'm not in remission, what my next six months will bring. So all these stages I had to adapt and fight in a different way but you know I fought it day by day with the hope that I always had with the belief that I can go through it the percentages wasn't as high with the leukemia that I had with the kids is very successful yeah. with the older people not that successful and I was between so when I was asking the doctor well, what was my success right and they were like well you know in that category you know in that category you're between okay so between he said we don't have stats for that that kind of usually older people you know this is what is it younger people Mm. so when you don't have the answers it becomes even harder because when you go to treatment like that the doctors the nurses people that are around you they don't give you that definite yeah it will work yeah it will be good you know if you if you're in a business you look at number you go yeah two plus two is four but when you diagnose it's Two plus two is your four. You're gonna go. I don't know. We may need to go three plus one. Can't guarantee anything. Yeah, Yeah, it's in a different way. You look in a different way, but you don't equal the same. You just don't know what to expect. You don't know if that's gonna be the same at the end. And and is it luck? And I'm lucky. I hope so. I hope so. I can't give you a definite that because, you know, I've seen. I've became friends with a lot of people that never made it, and they fought really hard. Uh, some of them, the, the chemotherapies didn't work. And, uh, you know, I am lucky, probably. And I do appreciate every single day. Yeah. I do I do go up every morning and I do appreciate and, you know, look with a smile to, you know, being alive and being, being able to do things that probably not many people have the chance to do it. It's so inspiring and, and wonderful to see you so well. I know you're still playing football and you, you look in great shape, but I know it's, it will have been a terribly difficult time. And I've, I have had family that suffer with the same illness and know how awful the treatment is. But 
do you think that um, some of those qualities that were instilled in you, you know, throughout your professional career helped you tackle that? How did you deal with it? I think the mostly was was the the positivity. I was um, I was very positive, and uh, to be honest, I uh, at that time I realized how how important is the support of the closest people, uh, my wife, my family. Uh, my friends. Because it must be fans. awful for them. I mean, for your yes, wife. Yeah. Yes. Uh, when you're in that battle, you you have a different mindset. Uh, you know what you have to do. You know the struggles in you. But the problem is when you see the people around you suffering because they don't know how to help you. I've seen my wife asking to what she can do. I remember having a, a one of the chemotherapies, and I, I went with uh, with um, uh, incredibly bad bone pain. So my whole body just went uh, and seized, and I, I couldn't move, and I was in a big pain. And you know, she's sitting above me, and she was like, "How can I help me? Can I massage it? Can I stretch it?" And I I was that tired, and I was down that much pain, and I know that she can because it's, it's in me. I'm fighting, and she couldn't do anything, and I can see her. And I'll just shake my head, and she'll go back in a corner in, uh, in, uh, in the room, and she won't be able to do anything. This is the harder moments that you look at it and go, "Okay, I'm going through it. Do, do I have to put other people it's around the helplessness me through it?" Of the situation. And um, that was the biggest problem for me. But the, 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 that positivity, the belief, the, the, the courage that I had to, to still fight and be able to still be here because. I wasn't ready to give up. Yeah, I wasn't getting ready to give up, and uh, you know, it, it was the most precious thing, and that's your life. Yeah, definitely. And you have so much to live for. I'm sure that will resonate with people, and anyone listening will be be really inspired by that, particularly if they're going through similar sort of battle at the moment. I guess alongside the physical side, and 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 you were, I guess, an elite athlete at the peak of your career when when this horrible illness hit. But there's also a big side of this is mental, and you alluded to the positivity and, and, and the way you approached it. But mental health is, is becoming more talked about in general in the world, but there still feels like it's a bit of a taboo in certain sports. So, so I'm keen to get your thoughts on that. We, we seem to be getting better at talking about it, but is it still a big challenge, do you think, in football? Is there stuff that more that can be done? It is very, very difficult subject to talk about. You know, the mental health is... Uh, Mental health is about the individual, you know, it's, it's about the brain, it's about how you control it. It's, the, the brain can send you in a different mood, in a different direction. And people say, the only problem I think with people with the mental health is no sharing, no opening up and no, no letting other people understand their fears, their problems. Because having your own mind, you always think this is right. But when you share with somebody, then you have a different point of view then you can have a support, you have a different advice. Same as, I, I'll put it that way, if you, if you look at the mind is, if I have only four friends and I only communicate with them and I only talk with them about things, I always think that what we say is right. Yeah? So that's, my, that's your mind. Your mind is thinking, okay, I've got a problem. Well, that's, it's okay to have that problem. I'll just share it for me. Nobody can help me. But actually, when you go to a wider audience and you've been able to communicate, to speak, to share, to let other people help you, then you find out that actually there's more views about it. That actually is not as worse than you think. And the mental health is about sharing. And don't forget, most of us at the moment, what was the biggest fear is about being judged. It's been, um, you know, being judged yeah. and it's been, you know, to fail. Is that the worst? No, it's not. We all fail. 
in some kind of forms in, in life or in sport or mm. in business. This is the part of the life. This is the part of the circuit. And a lot of people don't understand that. And uh, like I say, mind is a very difficult area where you can control it. And if you, if you want to control it, you have to share. You have to make sure Tasting. your brain works in a different dynamic, in different intensity. If you think that you're the only one who can help yourself, you're in the wrong place. I think it's, it's great advice and a, and a really important point. I think the more we talk about it, the more we open up, the, the better it will be. I think as a professional footballer, I guess, and you would have had this, probably not to the same extent because social media, I guess, has particularly picked up over the last few years. But but with back in the day, you would have had the media, you had the, the fans, you have all this extra pressure on you. And now you have social media chucked in. A, a lot has been talked about social media adding to the mental health crisis out there that, you know, it's people showing off this this perfect image of their life, which isn't always reflective of the truth. So what was your approach to dealing with that pressure when you were playing? And, and what advice would you have for current sports people that maybe or high profile people in that situation now? And I was playing, I never had a, pro, a, a social media, to be honest, when, when I was growing up and obviously the social media took over after when kind of retired. So probably I'll say I, I was lucky. Uh, I think uh, the social media, some people benefit from it, but I think a bigger percentage in the world struggle with it. Uh, it's a platform that anybody can say what they think. Anybody can attack anyone without showing his face, which a lot of people like to do that. A lot of people like to judge and express their view without, without really knowing and understanding the consequences that can cost, which is, uh, it's an area which it's a very difficult area to, again, with the mental health. Is your mental health do we share? Do we live our own lives? So we try to live some, somebody else's life. Do we, do we like to do it our own way? You like to do it like somebody else is doing it? So it's very difficult because, like you say, it's, it's a lot of people saying, oh, social media is good. Social media is good for what? It's, it's really understanding what you need the social media. If you look at the youth now, the social media is, is about digging into other people's lives see how people dress and what the cars they drive. Not many people will go on social media to learn and develop. This is a different yeah, way. If you can say point. the social media is the way we, we're developing and I'm learning from it, yeah. A small percentage will say, that's yeah. what I do. Yeah. That's why, but mostly they're not doing it. No, true. They're just doing it because, you know what, I'm talking about point of view of, you know, say the pundits, you know, they will go and express their view. And then you have about a hundred thousand going and saying, oh, this is wrong. This is out of order. Is it? Yeah. You know, it's just somebody point of view. And all of a sudden you have a hundred thousand yeah. jumping in, you know, because, oh, we don't agree with it. Well, okay. Then yeah. it becomes a problem. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Is, he, is he a bully? Okay. He just expresses his view. Things just get blown out of proportion, don't they? Of course. So it's about understanding. I, I do think with the youth, it should be a restriction. Uh, I think that, that the social media should be able to restrict, uh, should be ban people for, you know, not using the right language and, you know, being abusive. They should be banned. I think this should be the, the case, especially, with, you know, if I know the rules and regulations are completely different, but you won't be able to, you should not be able to give a 15 or 16 years old boy or a girl a voice in the social media 
without their actually mature and growing up to actually behave properly in the social media. Yeah, no, totally. And my daughter's far too young, but it already gives me nightmares just thinking about it. Do you just hear some I'm of the I'm stories? talking about it. My kids are the same. Yeah. And I do have conversation all the time. My kids are normally on the phone and, and I normally have the conversation. And, you know, my son, my son just, just give it to me back straight away. And he say, but you know what? When we go out, every single one is the social media. They're so that. I feel like I'm left out. It's hard. It's yeah, it's hard. hard. Yeah. So what do you want the best for the kid? You know, did, did, did you want him to be part of that society? Do you want him to have friends? Do you have him to communicate? This is where those captaining skills come into play. Exactly. Here. Exactly. <laughs> so it's a very great yeah. area what, what, what we can do and cannot yeah. do. But I do believe that the biggest percentage of the social media is not used in the right way. Some people do do it in the right way, but not, not the, big, uh, the big number is there. Food for thought. Um, well, listen, we're coming towards the end of our conversation, but I want to talk a little bit about the future because since ending your career, you've set up the Stilian Petrov Foundation, which is doing wonderful things. You're actively pursuing a coaching career as well. Um, so I wanted to ask a bit about what motivates you to continue your personal development and build on the career you've already had and, and what you're hoping to achieve in the years ahead. Obviously, uh, regarding the Stilian Petrov Foundation, me and my wife decided that uh, we want to give something back uh, because we went through it as a family. We know how difficult it is. We know where we understand and we feel that people do need help going through, through these periods. And it's a lot out there. Uh, not everybody is asking for uh, financial support. A lot of people are asking just to communicate. You know, people have finished their um, treatment so that they just want to make sure they want to see the point of view of somebody who went through it, how they go back to their normal life, how they, we can support them. So we support in a different way and it's great. It's really difficult because I said to my wife one day, it would be great if, if one day we have less and less, less people demanding for that kind of help. Yeah. Because that means it's either the treatment or the, we have the, the cure for cancer because that means we have less cases. But unfortunately, they're becoming more and more and more, which makes them more difficult. But we are there, we're pushing, we're helping and we're glad we do it. Yeah. We'll put a link in the in the in the Thank you. bio for this to make sure everyone checks Thank that you. out. Thank you, because it don't just affect people the fight of leukemia. It's about people around them and people who fight it together. And uh, we are glad that we we still out there. We still help like a lot more foundation does it. And a personal uh, note: um, I'm finishing my pro license, coaching pro license. I have finished my master degree in sport management Amazing. with UEFA. So I'm really proud of that. It's been two and a half years of uh, very hard studying. And everything was in English. So for, for me, it was very challenging. But, you know, going through programs like that, it just make you understand the football from the other side, you know, administration side, business side. So maybe in the future, I can be in a, in a different position in football. In coaching, I'd love to go back. And I've been starting to apply for a couple of jobs. I had a couple of interviews already. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, it's been a good experience and I hope that sooner or later I'll be back to, to where I belong because I, I believe that when you've been in football for that long and you've been through that many good and bad moments, I do miss it and I do believe that I'll do a good job, but one day I'll, I'll have that opportunity. Well, so that's I, why I'm up to date. Yeah, I can't I wait to see you, Matt. I think you have all the qualities to make an amazing manager and uh, we'll, or, or coach of a top side and uh, very much look forward to seeing that happening. I guess on that note of transition, 
given what we do, we see people transitioning careers all the time. But particularly for professional sports people who I've, I've spoken to a few over the years, it can be a very tricky thing, you know, leaving the height of your career, you know, you, 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 you've been building towards something for such a long time. Do you have any advice for anyone listening that's in that situation, maybe coming to the end of their career and looking to transition, whether it's within the sport or, or to something totally different? Yes. First of all, there's always opportunity out there. Don't think that if one chapter finishes, you can start a new one. Yes, it's going to be a new beginning. It's like the, the one that you've just finished. You have to go and prove yourself. You have to be different. You have to be somebody who can work with uh, in today's environment. So don't stop. Keep moving, keep pushing. And it's always going to become that opportunity for you that you can fit in and become somebody else. That's great advice. And for you, over the next 12 months, Dilian, what, what do you hope to have achieved in... And perhaps uh, uh, maybe some, uh, if you give us your hopes for your old club, Aston Villa, who are back in the Premier League as well. Uh, well, I would like to, to be involved in a, in a coaching site. Uh, I know, like I said to you before, I know it's a new beginning for me. I know I have to start and I have to prove myself again, which is totally understandable, like everybody else. About Aston Villa, great to be back in the Premier League. We started the, the, the season shaky. We've, we've played some good good games. We've played some of the games we played part of the game very well. It's a long season still. It's a long way to go. Uh, I believe that uh, I think the, the club will consider the situation and, and, and the next transfer window. And I think probably they have to add on some little bit more quality. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure that they're aware of that. And I'm sure that they're going in the right direction. From one villain fan, uh, Villa fan to another, I am keeping my fingers firmly crossed on that amazing stadium. Well, my last question, I guess, for anyone listening or watching that's thinking about a career move or just in need of some mentorship, given the name of this podcast, what kind of parting piece of advice would you like to leave them with? <laughs> I always, uh, and my I always advice is, you know, enjoy your life. Make sure you get up every morning, you smile, and you do things that you like to do. Because everything else, you can learn, you can adapt, and you can progress. So there's no point worrying the things that you think that it's going to cause you problems because every problem has a solution. And that's the way the, the, the way it is. And just enjoy it and make sure if you want something, go and get it. I think that's a, an amazing way <laughs> to end. Thank you so much, Dilian. It's been Thank an you. absolute pleasure to meet you. And yeah, very excited to see what the future has in store. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Pleasure. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor and if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.